Excellent. An ale for me. And for my officers. In fact, ales for everyone. Turn backwards. With Rick and Rick and Will and Zemma. Oh, yes. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Ten Backward, the Star Trek discussion podcast from the UK. I am Rick Everson, one of your hosts, and I'm joined as always by a man over the internet, Rick Palmer. Greetings. And a lady over the internet, Gemma Turland. Hello. And another man over the internet, Will Turland. Hey. Uh. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> I was trying to say hey yeah, but I was like I've got a slightly sore throat and I kind of kind of choked on those words so uh, it, just sounded weird, it sounded like a weird noise well we have another episode of weird noise for you um, this time we have been graciously uh, given the chance to interview Aaron Waltke uh, who is Basically, a, a writer, executive, co- co- co-executive producer, story editor, uh, and other titles that I got wrong several times. Uh, but in the interview, I did do them right eventually. Uh, and he he very nicely put up with a lot of our crazy questions and gave us incredible answers. So, uh, we'll without further ado, we'll go straight into the interview. We're here with Aaron J. Waltke, who was writer and co-producer on season one of Prodigy and is co-executive producer and story editor on season two. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to 10 Backward. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to have a talk with you about, uh, about writing on Star Trek, which uh, is obviously something we're really interested in. It's very exciting sort of stuff. Um, so if we go into the questions, um, I think early on, uh, Oh, well, how, how did you yourself get into TV writing? Um, well, it's it was a long, circuitous path, which it usually is for most people, uh, into television especially. You know, there's kind of two ways that people typically break in, which is either by a random sort of opportunity where luck sort of meets uh, chance, uh, and or I should say luck meets preparation, or uh, by kind of being promoted from within. You know, if you're, you start as a... a production assistant and then become a showrunner's assistant or a writer's assistant and then you work your way in for me it was the former i um you know i I didn't have that many connections to television or to the entertainment entertainment industry at large when i first moved to los angeles i I knew about five people and two of them were like my hairdresser cousin and my aunt you know who is a hr representative so not really attached to any sort of hollywood bigwigs in any way uh, I did have a few friends that I had met in college that had kind of come out maybe a year or two before me and started making indie movies or working here or there. So um, one of those people I did sketch comedy with in college, um, and he had gotten a like an entry-level job at a company called National Lampoon. That did, they did like uh, Animal House and the Chevy Chase Vacation movies and Van Wilder um, with Ryan Reynolds. Um, and they were trying to basically expand a into this newfangled thing called YouTube that nobody quite knew how to make money off of um, back then. Um, so they, they were kind of, it happened to be a, an opportunity where they, they were expanding and they needed people that knew how to write and direct and produce. And 
as I briefly mentioned, I'd done some sketch comedy and I'd also directed theater, but I also had sort of a piecemeal film degree, you know, so I knew how to operate lights and cameras and stuff. So I was sort of a Swiss army knife kind of guy, which is exactly what they needed. So that was kind of like my first professional writing job um, uh, slash producing slash editing. I was sort of a predator, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, nights and weekends, I wrote screenplays and uh, performed uh, sketch comedy around Los Angeles and, you know, shot short films and entered them in various, um, you know, festivals and that sort of thing. And, you know, that, that was kind of my life for a few years when I first moved out here. And every so often I would get a gig like uh, some friends of mine sold a web series to um, a company called Mondo Media, which was like one of the big animation channels uh, on YouTube. And so I got to be sort of a little a staff writer. I kind of put that in air quotes because I, I wasn't paid very much. <laughs> I was basically paid in pizza money. I may have been actually paid in pizza once <laughs> when I was writing that one. But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, just all these little kind of opportunities kind of slowly snowballed. And eventually my writing partner, Chad Quant and I, uh, at the time, uh, we wrote, or we, we pitched on a couple of projects for a couple of companies and wound up writing some features for them that were based on popular IPs. One of them was called the, the brave little toaster, which was like an old, uh, Disney movie that that uh, was very popular in the late '80s, and they had got secured the rights. Uh, I think I, we also wrote a movie treatment for uh, Heathcliff, <laughs> if you remember Heathcliff, the comic strip, sort of like a a, yeah. a lesser Garfield. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and around that time, you know, we were just sort of uh, bouncing around and. Uh, kept taking all these meetings and then eventually one of our scripts uh, landed over at DreamWorks Animation and it was sort of like a fantasy uh, sort of action comedy uh, set in about like a teenage girl who's like the sort of a Hunter S. Thompson-esque character who is dropped into a uh, a town in H.P. Lovecraft's New England <laughs> and, and a really fun sort of story um, and the DreamWorks took notice and said, this will be perfect for a project we have coming up in a few months. And that wound up being uh, Troll Hunters, uh, which is where I met uh, the Hegemans and uh, Guillermo del Toro and uh, Mark Guggenheim and Rodrigo Blas and so many amazing uh, talents. Uh, Andrew Schmidt also was on that and he directed some episodes of Prodigy for us. And, you know, they were all such amazing talents. Uh, the writer's room was the Hageman brothers, myself, Chad Quant, and... Uh, uh, Ashley Bradley or AC Bradley, who created uh, uh, Marvel's What If. Um, and so it was basically just the, kind of the four of us. And then we had a writer's, writer's assistant, Lila Scott, who uh, also wrote a couple of episodes. And <laughs> that was 52 half hour episodes that they just kind of dumped on our lap and said, all right, make a show. <laughs> and so it was very much, you know, for my first TV writing gig, it was uh, certainly a boot camp, but it was also an amazing opportunity because because it was a lean and mean animated show. You know, we basically just got I got to work very hands on with all of these seasoned pros, and I also got a chance to show them what I was capable of. Um, and we wound up writing uh, officially credited on I think about half of the episodes written, and then certainly had our hands on most of, if not all of them, in some capacity. Um, and based, you know, got to plan out a whole show from beginning to end, which is pretty rare uh, in in the television world. 
and uh, from from there, I was just kind of off to the races, you know. And uh, after that, we, they asked us to be the the head writers and uh, over on a spinoff of the Lego Movie called uh, Unikitty. That was at Cartoon Network. And then as that was winding down, the Hageman brothers, you know, had just had like a general meeting with Secret Hideout, and they were like, "Hey, Aaron, you like Star Trek, don't you?" <laughs> I was like, "Yes, I do." <laughs> and they're like, I, "We got it. We, we were asked to pitch on a show. They, they apparently want to make a Star Trek show with the Troll Hunters guys, and obviously you're one of those people." So, um, you know, that was uh, just a, a, as I said, sort of luck meets preparation because I've been a hardcore Star Trek fan for my whole life. Um, you know, and it inspires almost all the work that I do. So I, I was ready to be like, put me in coach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, that kind of leads on to my, my second question, actually, which was um, about Star Trek, because um, we were kind of aware that you're the prodigy writers, kind of resident expert on, on Trek. Uh, what's your origin story as, as a Star Trek fan? How did you get into that? Yeah, I, I do want to say I was I was one of many Star Trek super fans on the show. You know, I would say the other biggest ones, at, at least in season one, writers' room were the, uh, the Bensons, uh, Julie and Shauna Benson. They were, uh, you know, they were they were the ones that really gave me a run for my money. Uh, but ever, that's not to dismiss anyone else on the staff. Everyone else had like their favorite show, like a TNG or Voyager that they knew in and out. And that, that was kind of how we handled it. Like everybody kind of, you have your area of expertise and then a couple of us just kind of knew all of it because we're nerds like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but as far as like my, my personal origin story, um, I'm sure like a lot of you, I, I, it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, one of my earliest memories was sitting on the couch with my dad, um, and it was very exciting and I didn't totally know why, but I remember just sitting on the couch and he was very, very energized and I, no pun intended. Uh, and, and, uh, it, on the screen was the, the secondary hull separating from the saucer and there was a fanfare playing. And I realized years later that I was watching the, uh, the, uh, premiere of, Star Trek The Next Generation live way back in September of 1987. And clearly it made an impression on me because I was <laughs> fairly young at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, I never stopped loving Star Trek. It was always just kind of there. I was just like, yes, of course, that's how a Heisenberg compensator works. And, you know, here's how to make and um, yeah, and on, uh, after that, TOS, actually, I kind of retroactively got into that spending when I was, you know, um, fairly young, my parents both worked for a living. Um, and so sometimes I was left at my aunt's house to kind of babysit me. Um, and she had stuff to do. So she'd plop me down uh, in front of the TV and put on PBS. But for whatever reason, I think it was our local PBS station would air old reruns of the original series in the middle of the day. And so I got to watch all kinds of crazy stuff <laughs> that was maybe inappropriate for somebody who was under 10. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, I got to see like Calafee death battles and, you know, explosions and people melting <laughs> and, uh, Orion Panthers, all kinds of stuff, but it was, you know, it, it definitely left an impression on me. Um, and then of course from there, I, you know, as the new sh- sh- series came out, it was fantastic. And like deep space nine, for instance, was awesome because, you know, I, I didn't immediately start watching Deep Space Nine. So like by the time I got into it, I think one or two seasons had been on the air and our local Fox affiliate would air uh, an ep- one episode a day 
whenever I came right when I came home from school. So basically I got to binge watch it at a time when like no one else, there wasn't even a word for that. So whenever I heard like Star Trek fans were like, Oh, it's so heavily serialized and you have to wait so long to see how the story goes. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is one of the best shows ever made. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that, and then of course Voyager was incredible and enterprise. And then I just remember there was such a dark period after Enterprise got canceled where everybody was like, oh, Star Trek, it had a good run. It's not coming back. And I'm like, mm, no, I, I just, I'm about to graduate college. Um, and I, I'm so grateful and thankful to be part of this kind of third wave that's emerged. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we all have a, a similar sort of Star Trek origin story. I think we all... You know, it was just always there in, yeah. in our lives. And I, I remember um, one of my earliest memories of watching Star Trek is how much my dad hated The Next Generation because it wasn't the same as the original series. And he didn't like the Picard didn't go down to the planet to, <laughs> to, to investigate things. Um, and, you know, then years later we, ha- we have it's, uh, older fans moaning about new track uh, mm-hmm. not being the same as old track and you know i think that that never changes yeah well that's i think that's the nature of all things right i don't think that's exclusive even to star trek there's always people always want to recapture that thing that that captured you know their imagination as a child and uh, unfortunately times do change and i you know i i think yeah. i was lucky in that even the original series like I watched at a time where I, I didn't have much of a sense of what television even was. So I, I was just like, oh, I guess that's just another aspect of TV. But, you know, I, I get asked all the time, you know, how do you start watching Star Trek? You know, like people say, like, I've never seen an episode. Where do I start? And I'm, I'm until our show came along, I was always sort of like, I don't know, watch like 100 episodes and you'll start to get a sense of it. So like, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, I, I think that, What's fun about it, like it's, uh, you know, you're right that people do sometimes bemoan the new shows not being like the old ones. That's that that's the way TNG was. That's the way Deep Space Nine came out. Voyager, they're like, oh, this isn't as good as that. Enterprise especially got hit, hit with that. But eventually people come around and they're, you know, and that's what's kind of I like about Star Trek is that it contains multitudes. Each show takes pains to give itself its own identity. So if you don't like mm-hmm. one show, there's another show that's more for you. But even that, within a show, one episode, you're like, ah, I didn't really, w- I wanted something more. There's like a submarine battle episode. I'm just like, okay, then watch Balance of Terror. It's like, ah, I wanted more of a comedy. It's like, okay, then watch tr- Trials and Tribulations. You know, like, mm-hmm. like every, Star Trek has so many facets and just every episode, you have no idea what you're going to get. And that's, I don't think many shows can say that. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of it's always it interests me because I, I no, I'm the first in my family to like Star Trek, so I didn't have that. I sat on the sofa with, watching with my dad, sort of thing. However, my little boy now who loved Troll Hunters, um, and when I heard about Prodigy, I was like, Isaac, the people who wrote Troll Hunters are writing a new Star Trek, and he was like, ah. Oh. So now I, I'm the dad he sat on the sofa with, which is an awesome thing to be able to at least have it from that side at least for me so that's that's really wonderful to hear and that's a hundred percent what we were going for you know we we never wanted to just make a show that was just for kids or just for adults we you know there's a there's sort of a type of storytelling that fell out of vogue for the while but i think it's slowly coming back and that's like the family show the show that, that like young and old you can watch together and everybody will get something out of it you know 
uh, in, in Hollywood terms, it's called a four quadrant show, which I know has very different connotations, Star Trek. Uh, but in, in Hollywood, it's it basically just means sort of young, old men, women and everybody in between. Like everybody will you hit everything and everybody will enjoy it and and get get something out of it and that's those were your big big movies like indiana jones and et and jurassic park <laughs> basically anything spielberg touched james cameron you know like it, it was it was a really golden era of that type of storytelling is in the 80s and 90s and uh you know i think we always try to evoke that in our type of stories so it's very gratifying to hear that you and your son get, get to relive my own experience with our show. That you know, that, that's all I could have dreamed of. Oh, right. I mean, we've we, we've had a similar experience with our kids we actually have. because they we tried to get them into Star Trek before They're, and they hated <laughs> they it. They are resistant, but largely yeah. because we're trying to do, hey, watch this. I don't. Want, this is yours. It's stupid, and I want to watch yeah. my thing. But that yeah, this is they responded to this very differently That's, yeah and we we sit down as a family together after dinner and, and we all watch it and then talk yeah. about it afterwards and that's wow. that's really cool yeah it's really good to have that experience that's so cool thank, yeah. thank you for sharing like that, that really like uh you know brings a tear to my trekkie eye <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Whereas before that, you know, if if we were trying to put on an episode of Star Trek, it'd be because a punishment needed to be issued. <laughs> I think that's largely your fault. You turned it into that. I so. did. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> but for me, I feel like there's much worse punishments. But uh, you know, uh, well, yes. yeah. This is the principle. That's we're tricking them into it. I think. Yeah. So pretty soon, though, it's not going to work as a punishment anymore because they'll they'll see enough of Star Trek and Prodigy that they'll be curious about it, and then they'll be getting in trouble just so they can go and watch, you know, the Battle of Wolf three five nine or something. <laughs> yeah, well, well, actually, we we just recently watched the um, the uh, the Borg uh, episode mm. of Prodigy, and they they were pretty interested in the Borg okay. after that. And I think you know, okay, they maybe maybe they're ready for some for some some grimmer uh Star Trek. yeah well that's that was of our haunted house episode so and you know what i found fascinating i'm sure it's the case for every generation in some regards but i feel like this generation especially like they love getting scared like just look at the video games and franchises out there like my my, my like uh nine or ten year old cousin uh had an it themed birthday party <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's because she likes to show off that it doesn't scare her, you know, and then you're stronger and come out the other side. It's it's really fascinating. And that was the Borg. The Borg were that for me growing up. Like they were so alien, like truly alien in almost like a cosmic horror sense. Um, and uh, it was always really fascinating to have the, the Federation just not know how to deal with that at all, you know. Because it, because it, because Prodigy is very much a kids show. Was there any resistance, uh, if you'll if you'll pardon the pun, for bringing the Borg in? <laughs> because they are very much a horror. You know, uh, the, the TNG is very much sort of horror episode. I think in we never got any pushback from uh, you know the the Secret Hideout or Nickelodeon or anything to that regard. Because, uh, you know, one of the mandates of our show is to introduce new and young audiences to what Star Trek is in every sort of facet. Uh, and the Borg just occupy an outsized presence in, in the Star Trek sort of mm-hmm. 
fandom and in the the greater universe. Um, so, you know, we didn't necessarily get pushback in that. If anything, the pushback was sort of internal of like, okay, how do we straddle that line of, of exploring the Borg without uh, it feeling like a complete departure from our uh, the tone of our show, but also our willing to, you know, acknowledge our willingness to kind of go those places and those real emotions. And, you know, I think as we kind of... Ex- explore that through the lens of something that you know it's like just because we don't want them to experience fear doesn't mean that children don't know what fear is i would say if anything Mm -hmm. they need stories that show how people get through fear or self-doubt or or what have you um more than anyone so i think we kind of approach it from that regard which is like it's okay to be in a scary situation as long as you kind of understand that you know if you kind of rely on your friends and try to try to um you know be there for each other there's always you can always find a way out of it um and i think in that regard it was helpful in terms of like the mechanics logically of how they could face the borg that was an even trickier issue until we were kind of talking it out with the other um uh showrunners and internally on the in the writer's room and we realized that, you know, after the end of Voyager Endgame, they are, the Borg were very much like sort of decimated. They were struck, not a killing blow, but a, a very heavy one that like fundamentally changed how effective they were as, as Borg drones. Now, beyond just, I think Endgame, they just say it kind of cut off the collective from itself, but then they don't go into details of beyond beyond that of what else kind of happened to the Borg. And so... It was kind of an interesting thing for us to kind of explore that of just like and and you I think even Gerardi in Picard season two says like the Borg have been you know functionally hobbled and effectively decimated like they just aren't the Borg we knew anymore. So exploring what that actually means in, in our show was was an interesting sort of challenge. And then we realized like well what if the the neurolytic pathogen just shuts down their nanoprobes and you know weakens them. So that they are sort of in this hobbled state. So like, you know, in theory, they're still a threat, but they are kind of like almost sort of zombies of a bygone age, you know, that you don't, you don't awaken the tomb kind of a thing. Um, and that was interesting to us. Um, and, and it at least gave a plausibility to how they would be able to go in there and not immediately just have nanoprobes shoved in their neck and, and assimilated. <laughs> Yeah, that was um, that was something I noticed. They didn't immediately assimilate them with the tubules. Were there <laughs> yeah, kind of that. certain, you know, you decided you just weren't going to do certain bo- body horror aspects? Well, I think it was part, it partly was... just acknowledging, like, the ner- the effects of the neurolytic pathogen of, like, what would functionally hobble them and we and disabling the, the nano nanoprobes kind of made sense to us because then they're sort of like reverted back to sort of tng style but uh on top of that you're right they like there was only mm-hmm. so much body horror we could show in in a show that has young audiences and yeah i don't think any of us were totally interested in showing that you know i think that the, it, mm-hmm. that yes that, like that's that's all part of the board but um you know, I, it also has kind of been done, and I also feel like Voyager has had so many people assimilated, then unassimilated, then reassimilated, then unassimilated. You know, via you know the tubules, we were kind of and we were we thought we'd kind of toss it into more of a uh, 
we don't know what's going to happen kind of territory, partially because they're inexperienced and don't totally know, have, know the threat of the board the way that the Federation do, and also because we don't know what they're like now in this sort of post-Voyager in-game mm-hmm. kind of uh, universe. Yeah, and I mean, I really like that you, you still have that really effective moment where Janeway is saying, just just, just run, yeah. Yeah. just just get out of there. And that's that's a, a nice little moment of horror, and especially for, for Star Trek fans who know who the Borg are, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, and, and I, I still really like that moment where she, like, Gwen is trying to get out of there and uh, and she, you know, Janeway comes on the comms and says, just lower your weapons. They won't, if they don't perceive you as a threat, mm-hmm. then, then they'll ignore you. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> because, you know, I, I remember hear, hearing that in the original TNG and I was like, that's, that, that terrified me. So I, I'm glad at least some fans have written in and said that that moment in particular really kind of stuck out in this kind of Ripley yeah. kind of aliens moment. Um, and yeah, you know, yeah, and a little bit of first contact too with when, when the board kind of turns and looks and then mm-hmm. just turns back. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that's uh, Star Trek yeah. first contact is my favorite, uh, one of my favorite Star Trek movies. So, uh, definitely paying homage to it there. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Kobayashi, uh, which is uh, obviously an absolute dream of an episode for a hardcore Trek fan. Um, it kind of fascinated me. So, how, how was that developed? Did you? plan out a bunch of potential sound clips and write to them or did you write it and hope you found the clips that worked or did do you just know that much dialogue off the top of your head you could write it all quite Um, easily well i will say you know when we broke the episode we kind of broke it with the spine of spock and we did know pretty much all of the spock lines that were in there pretty much like verbatim like off the like the right like i said the writer's room had a lot of hardcore star trek fans so you know in terms of like his reactions to things and especially a sort of his relationship to dal uh we we literally had on the board from the beginning like you know uh the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and you know i i uh, you remind me of another captain I once knew. Or your, your, sorry, your stubbornness reminds me of another captain I once knew. That, that sort of thing. So we like we knew that stuff. And then as far as like the fill in the blanks sort of moments, uh, that was just pure sweat equity, my friend. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I, because some of the lines obviously like when Spock is talking about the neutral zone, I'm like, oh, of course we can just pull from Balance of Terror. Or, um, because that was sort of the introduction of that, and, um, and but then there are some elements that, like for instance, Kirk never stops and says, like, "Hey Spock, could you uh, just kind of remind me how the neutral zone works?" You know, <laughs> so we, that's why we brought in Gates McFadden, who was you know more than happy to kind of do, record a few new lines to help glue it all together. Um, but even then we were able to get a lot of it just through, um, just legacy dialogue, um, which, you know, we initially weren't planning to do that with everybody, but unfortunately some people weren't available or some people, um, you know, grew sick or, or passed away while we were, you know, in the process of making the episode. So we had to kind of, uh, you know, um, adapt and that that mostly kind of fell on me just going through and trying to i wound up watching something like um 
uh, gosh, 60 or 70 episodes. Oh, sorry, I, re- I read the scripts for about 60 or 70 episodes across the entire franchise and rewatched about 30-ish episodes, top to bottom. Uh, you know, because I would read the script and find a line that I think might actually work, and then I would go back and watch the episode and find the time code, but then it was delivered in a strange way, or they were kind of like making noise in such a way that even on the raw microphones, it didn't sound right. Or, you know, if, if on some of the older dialogue, like that was recorded in the 60s, you know, I, none of them, I think, thought this show was going to be what it was. So it was just filmed on old. It was recorded on old like magnetic tape and just one. I've since seen production stills. It was just like one dude with a boom mic just trying to capture the dialogue yeah. as it was going. And uh, you know, sometimes they're like, uh, even the dialogue that's in there. Obviously, it's very clearly of, of the '60s. But there was some dialogue that was much much worse than that because it was again nobody. I don't think they ever fathomed people would be archiving it and uh, using these archives and trying to craft them in this way. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a challenge, um, for sure. But, uh, what, what was kind of interesting though, is like, you know, as I worked on the episode and trying to find a way to make this work <laughs> with these increasing challenges, I started to see kind of the, 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 the code in the matrix, you know, <laughs> and I realized, well, I always kind of knew, but I, it became very apparent to me that, that there is sort of like this er Star Trek scene. <laughs> that like the this rhythm that every Star Trek scene of this nature follows of just like you know uh, do some skin sur- s- sensors we've picked up a ping you know uh, on screen hail them well, uh, red alert we're surrounded shields up you know <laughs> like like there's a very specific rhythm that just repeats itself over and over again so if you can find enough of those in different episodes it, it did kind of help guide it in such a way that I knew that it would work. Um, and you know, it was, it, I, I wound up doing a lot of, I worked on it for about three months, um, past when it, we probably should have locked it up just, just because there was, that was the only way to get it done. Uh, but it wound up, you know, uh, it wound up being okay. Um, and people seemed to really respond to it. So, so I, I guess the, the extra labor paid off. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely loved it. I, I've, I had to watch it two or three times to really get it because just the excitement of, I think, was, it kind of almost overwhelmed me in being able to take in the episode the first time because it was like, sure. oh, why, how have they done this? This is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was not an easy feat, that's for sure. No. Some no, people think... Some people think that there's just like an archive uh, that that Star Trek has, if you can just like, oh yeah, just get find you know find me all these lines of this character. It's like no, they, it's just in data banks and just the raw audio track. And so it came down to me just finding. I think in some cases I just found fan transcripts of the episodes just to and then did reverse boolean Google searches trying to trying to piece some of this stuff together. It was very intense. <laughs> Aaron, I'm I'm interested to know if the show was always going to be sort of um, a post-Voyager show in terms of um, the connections it had to a pre-existing series and and the location that it's set. Yeah, so um, you know, I think the location of it being the Delta Quadrant, you know, at least the near Delta Quadrant, near the the Beta Quadrant border, 
um, came pretty early on, you know, because we just wanted one of those sort of like remote areas that still wasn't relatively explored by Starfleet, but was sort of like, you know, on the fringe of that. Um, and as far as the, uh, the Voyager elements, I think a lot of us in the room, that was kind of, you know, I think we got a, maybe one or two glimpses of what that era of Star Trek, like the 2370s and 80s, looked like. Um, like, I think Nemesis maybe might be the only movie that we see that takes place post-Voyager, like 2378. And even then, it was such a narrow, like, window of, like, what's going on in, in Starfleet, you know, after that, uh, after Voyager. So in, in, in our minds, you know, Voyager, especially the ending, was such a game changer in terms of, uh, you know, they brought back so much like faster than light technology, quantum slipstream, they, the, the board transwarps are now sort of fair game as you've kind of seen in Picard and, and uh, um, Discovery. And, uh, you know, there's, they have, they, they had uh, coaxial warp drive, <laughs> they have quantum slingshots, null space, like they, they just discovered so much stuff that would be deeply transformative to a society or at least an organization like Starfleet that, you know, their, their sole purpose is to push the boundaries of scientific inquiry and exploration. And when you have all this technology that literally helped help them get home past 70,000 light years in the course of seven years, you know, that I want and not even to mention like all of the futuristic tech that future Janeway brought back and just kind of left behind for them. Uh, we, I was like, well, what, wait, what's the aftermath of that? Like, that's such a huge thing. I think a lot of Voyager fans wanted, you know, essentially like a whole episode of them back on Earth. But, you know, I, I, they just simply didn't have the time for it. And we and so our, our, our sort of brain cursor was sort of like blinking, you know, like what happened after Voyager? And so it kind of made sense for us between that and the Delta Quadrant element of it all that they're like, oh, we definitely feel feel like if, if we're going to we want it to be an entryway to all of Star Trek. But maybe we should start with Voyager and then kind of work our way to the back to the other series. Um, and so that was kind of our thinking. And very early on, you know, we we were, we were like, well, it, would it be like a just a random hologram, you know, and then and then we're like, well, who better to help whip together a ragtag, you know, group of quasi Starfleet hopefuls in a journey back from the Delta Quadrant than uh, somebody, a, a hologram based on Captain Janeway, because it's literally what she did. <laughs> and she's the by far the most celebrated captain in Starfleet history for having done that. Um, and so it, it made total sense to us to, to, have Kate Mulgrew be involved. And of course, when she said yes, it, it, it just opened up so many other more opportunities um, and including the, you know, bringing in now vice Admiral Janeway herself as, as a principal player, which, you know, but that was kind of fun, kind of hiding the ball on that one, <laughs> you know, because I think a lot of people are like, Oh, it's hologram Janeway. Oh, not just that Janeway. Um, and, uh, <laughs> that, that's just that's been uh, that's been really fun to kind of start with that post Voyager kind of twenty what does the twenty three eighties look like? And obviously Mike McMahon and now Picard have explored started to fill in the, the, the gaps there as well. But you know, in the area of time that we're kind of playing with specifically, 
you know, between 2383 up through 2401, you know, that's almost 20 years of open space that, you know, I think would most directly involve a lot of the characters you came to know and love during the Berman era. And, uh, and you know, it, it, it's just a big question mark in Starfleet history right now. So it's very exciting to, to start sketching out what that landscape looks like. Cool. I, I, I had a question on... Um... Uh, all the world's a stage actually which we we watched really recently mm-hmm. um, and actually that this is a question from our daughter emily oh fabulous and she yeah we we, we asked her you know do, do you have any questions that you'd like us to ask because she she wanted to know um how did you come up with the idea of a of a group of people who were obsessed with starfleet but but didn't really have any idea what starfleet was well, it was an interesting story because, uh, you know, I think when whenever we're like breaking a season, we always try to leave a little bit of room for sort of discovery and fun, right? And and new ideas because you know, it, I think it's always difficult when you're when you're making a, a show. You don't want to plan out everything so intricately that that it's you're just for the next 20 episodes you don't have any chance to discover or or play or or you know if you if you as in the writing of it if you happen to find something like oh that thing we were planning for episode 15 actually works much better here in episode 10 you know you have to be willing to keep it a little bit loose to, so that the story will tell you what it's supposed to be um, and in this case we you know we, this that particular episode we kind of had we knew narratively where our characters were at which was like that they, you know, they are faced with the first chance that they can't go to Starfleet right away, and they're kind of fresh off the heels of that. And they, they're like, well, what can we do while we're figuring out how to how to disable the weapon or safely get to Starfleet? So there's a little bit of self doubt there that we could still kind of like pry out. And um, and uh, in this case, uh, we had this sort of brainstorming session where it's like um everybody kind of wrote down story prompts that were just sort of like you know they didn't have to be fully full, full ideas just idea concepts or fun stuff um and deandra pendleton thompson who are uh, who is one of our staff writers on season one and and on season two actually um she came in with an idea and she just said like all the world's a stage and uh, uh, immediately i was kind of like well that Right off the bat, that sounds like a TOS episode because uh, you know they are mm-hmm. love Shakespeare yeah. quote. Um, and then, um, and then uh, the th- then she, I was like, "What's what's the idea?" And so she said, "Like, what if they land on a planet and everyone there is sort of acting out captain's logs?" And you know. That, that spurred the writer's room very quickly. It's like, what does that mean? Is it like the movie Contact, where they got like old transmissions by accident? And, but why are they why are they sort of obsessively acting it out this way? Are they like mind control? <laughs> and then slowly we started talking. I was like, well, a, another idea that that um, had been brought up a while back. I think a couple of us had pitched it. Uh, it might have been myself and the Bensons was the idea. Uh, you know, we always try to think of what are some Star Trek concepts that we can put a fresh spin on uh, and while introducing new audiences to them. And one of them was a cultural contamination episode, which, you know, the most famous ones being like a mm-hmm. piece of the action or patterns of force or something. They tended to be more in the TOS realm. Um, and so very quickly we're like, oh, well, and actually maybe instead of it, 
overcomplicating it would just have it be that a Starfleet officer a while back, maybe the TOS era, crash landed on this planet and sort of influenced their society. Um, and that kind of got our wheels spinning. And then we started saying, like, well, what if it was somebody from the Enterprise, you know, the original series? Uh, like, And then we're like, what if it was a red shirt? Because the red shirts, as we know, are always kind of left behind and left for dead. And it's like, well, what if one survived? Um, and then then that led us to, well, which one would it be? And then we realized that, you know, in, uh, first of all, a lot of the ones that had any significance didn't typically survive at the end of the episode. But uh, Ensign Garovic was one of them. Um, and, you know, we kind of, then that sort of opened up obsession and we kind of revisited that. We're like, oh, this actually is perfect because it's not, and this is more for people, uh, like an Easter egg for people to kind of go in when, if they know who Ensign Garovic was or remember that episode or discover it later, you know, because in that episode, that was that whole episode was also about self-doubt where Garovic like hesitated in fighting this dichromium cloud creature and somebody got killed and he was like, am I even worthy of Starfleet? Like, what am I doing here? And which is exactly a mirror of what our characters are going through in this episode. Um, so it was just kind of like this confluence of all these interesting ideas that very quickly kind of, you know, adhered together and became this really fast, like, it was like, well, now we have to do this episode. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, the idea of what's, you know, what is the sort of crisis? And we're like, what if there is sort of a literal contamination happening? And we're like, wouldn't it be cool if we, if, you know, they were losing Galileos all the time and some of them were never really explained where they went. And wouldn't it be interesting to see the last resting place of, the TOS Galileo, or at least the second one <laughs> that they replace after Galileo seven. Uh, and then, and then after that, they replace it with Galileo two in the third season without any explanation. So this is what happened to that one. Um, and so that it was just, this, it, and that, that's the fun of a writer's room is, you know, so you, you're free to pitch just sort of like free floating ideas. And then it slowly sort of uh, catalyzes and crystallizes into this thing that, that, that as I said, the story will tell you what it needs to be, um, mm. and and uh, the, the so, I was probably the most excited about it because of the wheels within wheels of it and the complexity. And sometimes I get a little too excited about those episodes, so they they kind of let me have it, and it was really <laughs> uh, really fun episode to write. <laughs> at what at what stage did the um, did the Shatner impression? Um, come up was that was that in the performance of the the voice actor or was that when you wrote it did you think okay maybe this guy should be actually impersonating Shatner well I think when we wrote it we were like well it it would make sense if they had some aspects of like TOS Enterprise you know sort of characters like at at least the names and maybe sort of a little bit of the performance feel that sort of like 60s kind of drama kind of a thing um in terms of going full shatner i think that was something that d bradley baker kind of brought to it when recording it you know uh, and we we felt that it kind of made sense because the exact same thing happens in our culture right where like you have it, it penetrates the zeitgeist so thoroughly you have people that have never seen an episode of star trek that do episode that do impersonations of william shatner going beam me up scotty you know which I guess is another great example because no one has ever said "Beam me up, Scotty" on Star Trek, and yet they have this they have this misappropriated kind of memory of a memory of what of what the stories were, 
And I was like, how interesting we can do sort of a commentary on that in a way that actually sort of makes sense in context of Star Trek of how, uh, you know, it does, it, you know, culture and sort of cultural drift can sometimes, you know, muddle a message or, or make it easy to kind of write off or, or whatever or oversimplify. And then the, the principle of the episode was sort of, just reminding the audience, like, look, it, you know, even if all the details aren't there, if your heart's in the right place, it's it's what it represents. It's, you know, I think there's we have a line that I put in there that was like, you know, it, you don't have to have a real ship to believe in what it stands for. And I think that applies to anybody, you know, both especially Star Trek fans, you know, that that I think so, sometimes people are look sideways at, like, why why are you going to these conventions and where do you have com badges and wear the uniforms but i'm like you don't understand like it's they don't actually believe that they're star trek you know and starfleet they they believe in what it represents and they celebrate it and, and they love it as as a community and that's effectively what i was trying to have dal sort of realize through the lens of his own sort of self-doubt you know like thinking like oh they're faking it and i'm faking it what are we doing here only to realize that, you know, they're just as Starfleet or Starflight as the rest of us. Uh, and, you know, it's it's when he lets go of those misconceptions, misconceptions, it's the one thing that winds up saving his and his friends' lives uh, by his, his willingness to embrace, you know, the community and all of its multifacets and, and unusual permutations. Mm. Plus, it does kind of we, we it conjures up a great image of Garavik doing impressions as he tells as he tells these people about Starflight. <laughs> yeah, well, I I I I was an avid camper growing up, and I, I thought like I think we say in there that he was he was stranded on this planet for mm. some time, and you know I would imagine gathered around the campfire at some point when he sort of realized that he was way past the upholding the Prime Directive and. Which means he'd have to be go a little Kirk, go a little rogue, and bend the rules or break them. Um, you know that that he would tell the stories of of where he came from, and I, since they are clearly a very theatrical and performative and imitative culture, he might have n- noticed that they really liked it when he kind of you know exaggerated some of the stories, and you know, and I would imagine that would that would be the, the element that they kind of latched onto. And so you're you're right. I think you know. I think we're all guilty of doing like sort of impersonations of our coworkers when you're telling a story, you know? <laughs> and and I think it so happens that it, it really <laughs> when it maybe spiraled out further than he was anticipating with this occasion. Um, I couldn't help but notice um, with Kobayashi and then all the worlds of stage. Um, are you on a mission to recreate all all the key bridges holographically at some point in Prodigy? <laughs> Yeah, I, I promise I'm not like doing it on purpose, but I will admit I have a problem. <laughs> I just, I just really again. Um, and you know, we wouldn't have done it if it didn't have a functional purpose. And in this case, it was there was you know this thing where we had, you know, I, I, what's great with sometimes when you're writing a complex story is sometimes you'll reach a point in the story where you have like three problems that are in need of a solution. And that was an occasion where, you know, we were like, well, even if they have watched these sort of like damaged, like Starfleet training videos, you know, and and recreated them over the centuries, 
of how how to just by rote memorization how to how to turn the ship left and how to how to lock on and transport and stuff you know they that would be 23rd century technology and we're in the 24th century with arguably one of the most advanced ships of that era how would they possibly know how to do that and then we were like well we uh, maybe we should lean into that because there's we've already established there's hollow emitters all throughout the ship you know for, for J- hologram Janeway to be able to move around what if we just kind of tax those to their limits and and we're able to uh, and this was a beautiful piece of sort of techno babble that our uh, our cons- Trek consultant and famed Star Trek author David Mack came up with which is the you know uh, to recreate the constant constitution class hollow uh, hollow consoles mid 23rd century and translate translate the commands to the um the the protostar's helm uh, so basically they were sort of illusions that that interpolated in uh, into what uh, what these enterprisians would know how to how to operate um and i, I i'll admit it i still get kind of choked up when i see that moment not just because of seeing the bridge again in a way that, that that's like old school cool, but because that is that the sort of the crowning moment of Dal, sort of his faith in other people is finally rewarded and saying like, hey, just because these people are a little different than you doesn't mean they're not capable of great and wondrous things. And that that's what gets that Starfleet, baby, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been I've been playing the um, the virtual reality the bridge crew game, and I can attest to the fact if you switch from the next gen bridge to the TOS one, you yeah you you absolutely could do with some sort of overlay with the controls. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really related some stuff with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no labels. It's it's really difficult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aaron, I have a, a question about the the main villain of season one, the Divine. I think he's a great character, and I just wonder how early on in the writing process did you did he come around, and did the casting of John Noble um, affect how you wrote him? So, the, yeah, there's sort of two answers, two part answer to that. The first part being um, uh, we it was very early on. I think that was the, we spent the first two and a half weeks just really kind of hammering out like who are our characters what are their motivations and what how did this ship wind up in tars lamora why is the diviner after it um and you know i think we we all are very interested in you know obviously it's hard to get away from Khan when you're talking about star trek villains but what we thought wouldn't it be interesting it you know if we if but like Khan, uh, there was a reason that uh, that this character hated Starfleet and also there was a reason for the ship. And, and so we started talking about like, you know, it, it seems like for it to have been buried in the rock where it was for as long as it was, but still be um, as advanced as, as it was, time travel would have to be involved. Right. <laughs> so, um, and that was an idea that I think that had been toyed with by the Hagemans when they had written the pilot, you know, that I think, um, uh, Dreadnought was referred to as a, a temporal advisor, but w- you know that, what that exactly meant didn't quite it hadn't been fleshed out yet. So that was sort of like our mission number one was to kind of figure out who who not only our main characters are, but also who their antagonists are. And you know, I think we all liked the idea that deep down 
he is sort of, even though he's hardened by all of this really horrible stuff that his planet and his, his loved ones have been through and stuff that there is sort of like, you know, beneath that really dense exterior, he does care about his daughter, but he, it's just been warped by this sort of like single-minded mania of, of, you know, seeing 50 years of suffering and, and just sort of like it, none of that matters anymore. I, my, I just have to prevent Solom's destruction and then, and then I can undo all of that, and in at least the prime timeline. Um, and so, that that sort of duality, even if he is sort of you know crusted and angry, but also having him be sort of like damaged, you know, and and also have a a really complicated relationship with with uh, with Gwendala, who he perhaps originally created just to carry on his mission with that sort of single line of purpose. But then despite himself kind of grew to really care about her. Um, and then having to balance that overwhelming duty with that little accidental sort of emotional attachment, it was really interesting. And then there's only so many sort of people that ha- they can balance all of those things. And I think John Noble kind of drifted to the top of that list very quickly um and sure enough he was uh i think he's good friends with alex kurtzman and alex reached out to him directly and he he read the the materials and said yes um so we're very lucky to have john noble because he's a fantastic uh actor um and a really nice guy (laughs) despite uh, all of the really less than pleasant characters he tends to play (laughs) like denethor (laughs) the guy from um uh fringe yeah yeah definitely yeah. Uh, I was, I was, I wanted to sort of ask you because one of the one of the reasons we asked, asked you on is actually we kind of wanted to start talking to people to get a bit behind the nuts and bolts of Star Trek. So how does a writers' room kind of really work? Uh, we've obviously we see a great example of Star Trek writers breaking the story on the Deep Space Nine documentary. Um, if you've seen that, is is that kind of typical, or is there is it is it? more shouty is, is everyone arguing and pointing at memory alpha <laughs> I, I, I would not say it's shouty at all like I, you know i think I, it's been a little while since i've seen what we left behind but i do remember that being a really great sort of example of a writer's room um you know uh it, we, we tried our best to have it be egalitarian you know obviously somebody has to play the referee you know and usually that's that's the showrunners or like on the second season, for instance, uh, when I was the story editor, that was kind of my job when the Hagemans were uh, out of the room. Um, and so, it, but we always tried to be just that, a referee. Like we'd have our own ideas, but we, and we maybe sometimes set the ground rules of like, okay, we need to solve this story problem, you know, or what is an interesting thing that they could encounter on this planet of X you know, and then and then we all everybody would kind of pitch in and talk about ideas. And same goes to after the script was written, we would always have a, t- a table read that was just for the writers that we would kind of read through and stop scene by scene and just be like. And, and we'd also send send the scripts ahead of time so people would gather their thoughts. And then and then we would we just pause and then everyone would say, okay, uh, that was the scene. Anybody have any thoughts? Any notes? Anything that we didn't think of? Uh, you know, are, are there any punch-up ideas, whether from a character clarification standpoint, or even just like fun lines of dialogue or jokes or callbacks? And you know, so we tried to have it 
piece so that everybody, you know, regardless of title, had a, a, a voice, which I think is important because I, I'm a firm believer that a good idea can literally come from anywhere. And if you don't acknowledge that, then that's just your ego getting in the way of what could be an excellent story. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's ten, that tends to be how we run the writer's room is just sort of uh, everybody is an amazing resource and everybody obviously has their strengths and it's okay to pitch a half-baked idea or fail because you never know. It might spur like, oh, well, that would never work because X. Uh, and then we, the only way that could work is if you did Y and then suddenly you're like, oh, I think we just solved it, <laughs> you know? So we try to keep it kind of open and, and conversational and that, that seems to work very well for us. I had a question actually from uh, another question from our daughter, which I feel really ties into that, mm. which was just, do you, do you ever get stuck and do you ever need help when you're writing? I mean, yes. Uh, you know, before we send somebody out to, um, to script, we usually try to have most of the, the big stuff figured out because the, otherwise that would, <laughs> you, you just have a, <laughs> <laughs> an emergency meeting every so often of somebody just staring at the page like I don't know how to fix this. Um, so usually before we send someone off off to script, we have we'll do like we'll beat out what's called an outline or a beat sheet that then they will kind of have a chance to polish and write out what's called like an out, a treatment. Uh, and as they go, they can and they're really focusing on each scene and like what the actual dynamics are like. Uh, like they might say, Hey, I just noticed this. This is something that we didn't think of. And then we'd have open up the room and make a, a judgment call and uh, on the way. That being said though, you know, when we're breaking story, there's always times that, that they're like, I don't know how we're going to get, like, I know we start, start at point A and we end on point C point B is very murky right now. <laughs> um, but you know, there's a great podcast. If you're interested in screenwriting called the, the children of Tindu. Uh, from uh, Javier Grillo Markswatch, uh, who created The Middlemen, the science fiction series, and also he was a writer and producer on Lost. Um, and uh, and um, he had this great thing that he said where it's just like, you just have to let it suck sometimes. You know, <laughs> like, like if you have good stuff on the board, put it on the board. And then, and then, um, you know, try to massage as much as you can on either side of it and just let the part that doesn't make sense to sit there on the board, like, you know, like, <laughs> like a turd and, and just wait, uh, wait until inspiration fixes it for you. Cause inevitably when you're working on act one or act three, you're going to start to think about like, well, uh, Oh, if we want this cool thing to happen, then we need to set this up. And then suddenly you're like, Oh, we would set that up in act two. So now you have a little bit of a better angle and then you just kind of keep that process going. And if it's truly not working, then it means you have to zoom out again and maybe rethink what's not working and then try to find a different path that's maybe spiritually similar to what everybody was liking of why we were trying that idea in the first place. Um, but 100%, you know, we'll get stuck and then we just have to somebody you, hopefully somebody will just come out with just like a wild pitch and they're like i don't know if that works or not let's try it and you know i would say 70 percent of the time that will like you know get the log jam unkinked and then everybody can at least start pitching interesting ways to fix it um and some you know i will admit sometimes we'll have something we think we have beat it out and then we'll see it in the script You're like oh that doesn't quite work does it 
you know, we, we, we needed more page count than we realized to really make that scene work. So we would either, um, you know, have to re-break those scenes or find ways to streamline some of the stuff in the episode and or in the, in the script in order to make it all fit and play nice. Um, but that's just the process. You know, like I said, you have to leave room for discovery and you also have to leave room for just, um, you know, failure as well. <laughs> because the, all you can do is just pick yourself back up because you have a deadline looming. <laughs> I have a question that kind of relates to that in in regard to the episode Time Amok. Um, when you're writing episodes that involve things going weird with time, and not just in that episode, you, you, you've alluded to other parts of the series where time travel is involved. Um, how, how do you how do you go about that without sort of getting lost in the weeds of of how time works? <laughs> Well, um, I mean, it helps that uh, a number of the people in the room, myself included, are huge time travel buffs. I feel like I've seen almost every time travel thing that's ever been made in film and television. Um, and uh, I also know have a pretty solid idea of, of time travel in Star Trek. And I, I should say the many ways that time travel works in Star Trek, because I think if there's one thing that you can take away from it is that... It, it really kind of depends on the circumstances. You know, there are certainly episodes where they're like, oh no, how are we going to get, you know, uh, Archer back from the future? And then like, you know, a, another series 30 years later, is like, oh yeah, you just have to warp around the sun. <laughs> I mean, you can time travel. <laughs> um, so, and then there's other episodes where it's just like, oh, if you, if you change the past, then suddenly the present will change, will change immediately. Like I think what, that was yesterday's enterprise, right? But then you have other episodes where, you know, um, where they will make some change uh, to the future and then somebody will come back and try to prevent that change. And that them coming back doesn't immediately alter the future. And sometimes, you know, they don't just suddenly disappear uh, when that that future is changed or sometimes they do. It just depends. Um, you know, like, uh, <laughs> and episodes like relativity, which is even crazier where that, that's the Voyager episode where we spend most of it on a 29th century time ship. And the one thing you can take away from that and perhaps, uh, you know, the, the character, uh, that, uh, the time cop that you see in enterprise is anything you think you might know about how time travel works, throw it out the window <laughs> because in relativity, they're just like kidnapping people from multiple time points and they're coexisting together and they're going back in time three or four times in the same periods of time. And, and then having these sort of like sort of uh, people that they pulled out of time, they're on the time ship. And then, and then it just ends with like, Oh, you know, we'll just, we'll just reintegrate the timelines. It'll be fine. <laughs> We'll, we'll just merge them. <laughs> There's a thing we do. It's fine. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, you know. Um, and so the, you're, the, I think the biggest takeaway is to make sure that you have an understanding of what the rules are for whatever version of sort of time manipulation you, or, you know, parallel timeline reality manipulation that you're dealing with, right? Because... Uh, Enterprise, I think, made it very clear, and also Star Trek 2009, for instance, that parallel timelines can coexist. And in fact, they can come into our prime timeline and try to interfere with it and conquer it, so to speak. Um, but, you know, those timelines 
still have to exist because those people are sending agents in over and over again trying to make these changes. So it's it's a the multiverse in Star Trek is a very wild and weird place. And you know, I think Parallels is another great example. TNG where you have uh, Worf, you know, is he he becomes destabilized due to an anomaly, and he just starts jumping between all of these parallel timelines that all coexist. And at the end of the episode, you see thousands of enterprises all materializing uh, from different timelines, uh, just saying, and then they have to push them all back to their own parallel timelines. So, so clearly, you know, the rules are are, are <laughs> complex, but you just have to make sure that for whatever you're dealing with, it's clear. And, you know, I think for the diviner, for instance, we were like, oh, well, the rules in this case are he came from a sort of a, a dark alternate future where Solomon was destroyed and he kind of incursed into our timeline to try to create a new timeline where Solomon was saved uh, or, or at least alter the prime timeline so that so that it's saved in this timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, which I guess is, you know, you've seen in other in, in other iterations of star trek um and then with the episode uh time amok that was like we were like oh well, this will be interesting because it's more of a fracturing of of time into sort of split dimensions which we've seen a few examples of in other show episodes and shows like uh i think voyager had an episode called shattered or something where like different parts of the the ship are different times at uh, different periods of time like they like Chicote goes through one door and then suddenly he's in season one and goes through another and he's in season seven. And then, but then you also have, what was it? The Voyager episode deadlock, I think it was where you have, where Voyager encounters an anomaly and then splits basically into two overlaying realities. One where mm-hmm. everything went awry and people, everybody died and or a lot of people died and the ship's about to explode. And then one where, um, where it was fine and they avoided the anomaly and then they have to find a way to sort of uh you know merge those two realities together and that's why we have instant kim from a different reality now and nobody talks yeah about <laughs> yeah no we forget about that <laughs> oh going back to the time amok um um was uh, uh focusing on the character of rock is she called mm-hmm. Um, was that, um, did, did you always have the idea that she was going to, uh, find this, uh, an aptitude for science and a love of science and this was a perfect opportunity or did this episode actually create that story for her? That was actually baked in, uh, at least the, the interest in science was something that was baked in from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that was something that we really, uh, as I said, the first few weeks of the, the writer's room, we just spent a lot of time just talking about character, right? And we liked the idea that 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 in other Star Trek shows, there might be a character who you just assume is going to be the security officer, but actually is a sweet little girl who, you know, has an aptitude and interest in science. You know, that, that really appealed to us in a very Trekkie way. Um, because I think it, you know, it is very easy to judge a book by its cover, you know, um, and so we knew that we wanted her to kind of if, find her calling as a science officer. Um, but in this case, uh, the w- what we found was like, you know, the way she starts, she is very sort of naive in a way, and she she's very childlike. And we were like, 
it would be nice if there was some way that she could have sort of a crash course in science. So, so, you know, we don't have to just do that between seasons and just like, Oh yeah, she studied and now she's a genius, you know? (laughs) And I was just like, and then in this episode, as we were breaking it, we were like, Oh, how interesting that, that, um, you know, this character that perhaps you, besides Murph, you have, might have the, the least likely idea that she would be able to resolve this issue. If you, given enough time, she would be yes, that she has the potential to be great. And that, that really appealed to us mm-hmm. because there are so many occasions in Star Trek where other, other characters do, like Inner Light, for instance, or the episode where... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, O'Brien, you know, is sentenced to a 20 year prison sentence in the course of like a couple hours. Like, like there's, it's a, it's an interesting premise of, of somebody who psychologically has suddenly a bunch of experiences sort of downloaded into, into them, but they're, they are otherwise the same physical age, which would, which then kind of made her a literal prodigy, you know, and that she, she had the aptitude of someone who is several years older than her, uh, um, in this, in this young body. So that was that was a really interesting idea for us. It was heartbreaking, but you know, and that was probably the one time we got a little pushback from from Nickelodeon, where we had we had actually written in how long she was in in, in that chamber uh, in that timeline, and Nickelodeon's like, you can't leave a little girl alone that long. And so we were like, what if we just said too long? And they were like, that's fine. But in some ways, I think it makes. It because you know now your imagination just kind of fills in the blanks of how <laughs> how long that was it that she was in there for, and so I think it wound up working out. Yeah, that's interesting because I I was wondering how long she. I was like, they didn't say how long <laughs> she was. How yeah. long is too long? Well, it's, it, it is interesting how audiences sometimes will kind of fill in the blanks uh, in ways that are just as powerful, um, you know. <clears throat> This is sort of a, a, a more intense example, but I remember, I, I assume you've seen Reservoir Dogs, the Quentin Tarantino uh, mm-hmm. film. A lot of, everybody always yeah. talks about how brutal it is, that scene where like he gets his ear cut off. But if you actually watch the, the, the movie, they don't show it. They just imply it. Yeah. And, and your, but your imagination fills in the blank. And it's an, an interesting aspect of, of how audiences react to stories. If they're truly invested they will they will fill in the blanks in ways that that it's a little bit like how radio can really invoke the imagination even though you're just listening to people talking and music and stuff. So um, cool. oh yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask you about um, about zero. Um, it, it's a great reference uh, back to Zero in being Medusan. Um, but how did how did mm-hmm. Zero as a character come about? Uh, well, I think very early on when the Hagemans were breaking the the pilot. Um, they were kind of of the impression that, you know, they were like, surely there's a way we, we don't have to only be uh, using people that clearly have like rubber on their foreheads, you know, like it, it, Star Trek every so often will like push the boundaries of alien races. And they're like, we need to take advantage of the animated medium and show some alien races that maybe didn't get as much screen time because they were, they would have been hard or impossible to be series regulars, you know, in, in a live action show. And so we just kind of assembled this list of all of the most interesting and, uh, boundary pushing characters or, uh, races and species that Star Trek had kind of encountered. Um, and I think, uh, Medusin was a really interesting one because they're like, it is a very wild 
premise of a non-corporeal being that's essentially just a glowing, colorful ball of gas or, or energy that's inside of this containment unit. Because if you look directly at it, you will go mad. <laughs> like, talk about, talk about uh, you know, um, sort of creatures that really kind of make you think and the and the idea of what, what was especially fascinating about that episode uh, you know is i think it's called is there in truth no beauty or something to that effect uh it's in the original series um was that Kolos, the 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 medusan in that episode was a benign character <laughs> like like Kolos was was trying to be helpful <laughs> and was an expert expert navigator it just what wasn't their fault <laughs> that that people would go crazy looking at him uh so so yeah it was it, that that sort of element of like someone who who wants to be you know kind and benevolent but just happens to have a physical trait that is very different from a traditional humanoid was very interesting for us and you know, and for Zero in particular, you know, their their journey of being someone who, you know, is is curious, but also perhaps a little out of touch with how corporeal beings exist, but also because they're telepathic, they're, they, they feel all of those emotions. Um, and, you know, they want that connection, even if they truly can't reach out and touch it, you know, that that felt very beautiful in a way to us. <laughs> um, so my, my final question, then uh is so a few years back at a convention we did a live podcast which was along the theme of who would win in a fight various characters the winner was was janeway so as as you're now sort of one of the main writers for janeway in her future uh who would win in a fight between her and any of the other captains one at a time not oh, all gosh. at once and they're not um, piling on her in one go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like Oh, you like, I mean, I, I'm inclined to agree with you because I've said this <laughs> elsewhere that Janeway is uh, one of those captains that like, I think at first glance, you know, I think it's easy just to kind of get caught up of like, she's the first female captain that we saw prominently featured in, in a series. But if you really kind of dig into her character, she has elements of all the other Starfleet captains that are truly amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, like she has the humanity of Archer. She has the intrepidness of of uh, of Kirk. She has the sort of philosophical inquiry of Picard. Um, you know, she has the uh, uh, the boldness, shall we say, of Captain Pike. Um, you know, she, uh, uh, she has the um, the pragmatism and the ends of the earth sort of get it done philosophy of Cisco. You know, I, the list goes on. I think she has all of those elements. And I think, I, I know some people have said that makes her character inconsistent, but I think it just makes her character really interesting and complex. Because I think we all contain uh, multitudes. And, you know, she's proven that she's very good at all of them. Plus, you never want to get in the way of Ripley Janeway. Macrocosm Janeway <laughs> will mess you up. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Brilliant. Okay. Um, well, I think that wraps up all of the queries we had uh, thank you so much for your time aaron it's been an absolute delight talking to you uh, um well yeah so th- thanks so much for having me and uh, i encourage everybody to check out star trek prodigy that uh, is currently on paramount plus and uh, other channels depending on your region 
So, you know, go, go check it out, figure out, check your local listings as they used to say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's new episodes coming out now, 20 episodes, uh, in, in total of the first season that, that will be out by the end of the year. So, uh, people seem to be really liking it. I think you will too. Uh, so, uh, enjoy. And, uh, you know, you can find me on social media at good Aaron. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, that's G-O-O-D-A-A-R-O-N. And you can also follow the Star Trek Prodigy Writers Room. That's uh, Trek Prodigy Room um, is, I believe, the Twitter handle. Uh, so that was our interview. Hope that was enjoyable listening. Uh, we had a we had a fantastic time talking to Aaron. He was uh, well. He was absolutely lovely. He gave us incredibly good answers. Didn't uh, I think any of our questions were stupid? And clearly had a lot to say about Star Trek. And if if he did think any of our questions were stupid, he hid it well, he which did. I thought yeah, was really polite. It's, <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it's very polite. So. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, it was it was an amazing opportunity to to get to speak to someone who's involved in the creative process of a of a Star Trek show. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and as with it, any time that we've done an interview, it always just surprises me how um, how, how willing people are to to give us our time and 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 talk to us about Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's just, such a privilege to 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 speak to people involved in the show. Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think back to like when I was a kid and watching Next Gen, and then I was like, you know, going through stuff like the Star Trek Next Generation Companion, you know, the, those those books that really sort of opened my eyes to a whole world of production behind the shows that I loved. And it's like now, now we're in an age where we can talk across the world to a guy who's actually writing Star Trek episodes that I'm enjoying. It's uh, it's an amazing thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a been an absolute privilege to be able to bring you that little uh, chat and insight into the world of writing for Star Trek. And if you, if you, listeners, if you haven't watched any of uh, Star Trek Prodigy yet, then it's it's really worth watching. Mm. It's yeah, we, really we haven't really we haven't really talked about it on the on the podcast much yet, have we? We should probably address that. No, I I wasn't a hundred percent sure it was available in the UK yet. It is, yes, it is it's on now, Plus. It? Oh, yeah, it's 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 completely up to date, um, and basically we get it the day after on Paramount Plus, the day after America does. So, yeah, we, we can remain completely up to date and watch it through that. Um, and I think you get longer trials of Paramount Plus on crisp packets at the moment. But, uh, Ooh, <laughs> that, that may that may be out of date info by the time this episode goes out. Looks like Everson is uh, has taken a. Taking a taking a bung from from Big, uh, from Big Crisp. <laughs> <laughs> um, what a surprise! Oh, it's all right. Sold out. Well, I do. Like, they could literally pay me in crisps, and I'd happily sell out. If you're going to take a bung from any any corporate body, Big yeah. Crisp is the one you want to go. For. I was <laughs> Big Bung, Big Bung. <laughs> if you're going to take a bung, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, I, I need I need stoppers on my test tubes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know they do giant watsits that are prawn cocktail flavour. I mean, yeah, I would. I'm if if Big Crisp is listening, I am completely available to sell out. Yeah, <laughs> let's put it out there now. I mean, I'll, I'll I'd accept like an Aldi own brand. Um, oh yeah, why not? You know, what's it? But the supermarkets are available. I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's it. You're right. You're right. 
Um, that's yeah, there we go. We've got slightly off topic, which we didn't do in the interview. So there's there's your complete divergence from Star Trek for for this episode. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening, and uh, join us again next time for some more Ten Backward. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Do you realise how incredible this is? It's <laughs> tradition. You ever noticed her bum? What? That bum. Oh no! I will say. I will say. Fewer things. Fewer things. Okay. Enough of this self-indulgence. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, our website is www.loweredexradio.co.uk. You can reach us on the Twitters at at 10 backward, 10 being the number and backward being the word backward. We're also on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash 10 backward podcast. You can also email us at crew at loweredexradio.co.uk. On a personal individual level, my Twitter is at Will Turland. Rick Everson's Twitter is at TrekFanRick. And Rick Palmer's Twitter is at Mr. Imhotep. Hi, thank you again for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you might consider supporting us. We have now have a Patreon uh, where people can uh, pledge small amounts to fund uh, ongoing projects like uh, keeping our website up to date, uh, um, new audio equipment as we're going along, and potentially uh, opportunities to expand our content. Uh, you can go look at this at patreon.com forward slash loweredexradio. Uh, if you don't feel you can donate but would still like to support us, we would love it if you could subscribe to us or however get your podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or we're on various third-party apps. And if you could leave us a review on any of those, that would be fantastic and would be very appreciative. Thanks again for listening, and please tune in for more podcasts from the 10 Backward Crew. Let's make sure history never forgets the name. 10 Backward? Laddie, don't you think you should... Rephrase that. Ten backward. Ten backward.